0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine The ENDS Report. In this episode, we're going to examine why the Environment Agency hasn't been enforcing water protection rules. We'll look at the new environmental watchdog's assessment of DEFRA's green policy, and then we'll look at Natural England's creation of a giant new nature reserve. Then, Jamie's going to quiz me and Tess about environmental fines, which vary wildly, so I think it's going to make it pretty tricky to get right. And following that, Jamie and I are going to take a deep dive into the case of the missing links. And finally, Gareth and Simon will be along to spoil your relationship with your strawberries and cherries and all sorts of other assorted fruits. So, without further ado, let's enter the eco-chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and as usual, I'm here with our editor, Jamie Carpenter. Hello. And journalist, Tess Colley. Hello. First up, we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. Our first story is about how the government instructed the Environment Agency not to enforce rules that were created to protect rivers from farm pollution. These so-called farming rules for water were introduced in 2018 to fanfare and stated, amongst a lot of other things, that when farmers were allowed to apply fertilisers to land near water, to protect that water, But at ends. we've reported over the years that it looks like the rules weren't being enforced because there hadn't been any prosecutions associated with breaches of the rules. And it turns out we were right. At a House of Commons meeting earlier this month, Environment Agency Chair Sir James Bevan said the regulator deliberately did not enforce the rules for the first two years. And why? Because the government asked it not to. Jamie, can you tell us about the government and the Environment Agency's justification for launching these rules and then standing down the agency?
1: Yeah, well, it's all it's all um, a bit of a mess, really. So, so th- as, as you mentioned at the start, the rules are designed to reduce water pollution caused by agriculture in England, um, and and we and we know that um, agriculture is a primary cause of water pollution, and uh, excessive use of fertilizer and pesticides in agriculture. I think is responsible for around forty percent of water pollution in England. So it's a big problem, and the, these rules are designed to address that. But but the the implementation of the rules has been, I think it's fair to describe them as a bit of a mess. So you have farmers have been very unhappy about them. It's fair to say that the the, the rules have been a bit of a mess so far. So there's been, farmers have been concerned because of the kind of it, it making it more difficult. that they, they, they feel to spread, spread manure at particular times in the year, particularly in the autumn um, and probably come on to that a bit later um, for for the water industry it's been, they've expressed concerns because they, um, this might have implications about where the, the biosolids they produce will go, so more than more than 3 million tonnes of biosolid products are produced every year by the water industry which is normally spread onto agricultural land there's been a concern that a strict interpretation of the rules would, would kind of massively reduce the, the ability for this to happen and then there's this whole issue of enforcement so, which is basically not not happened so i think there's there are some figures showing that there've been a total of 391 breaches of the rules that were recorded in the 2021-22 financial year and and green groups think there've been many thousands more of um, breaches that haven't been documented but actually there've been no pr- prosecution so far
0: yeah i think i think there's uh, there seems to be on one side farmers um Pushing against these rules because I guess if they can't spread all this stuff on land in the autumn and the reason for for trying to prevent them to do that is because the rain just washes it straight into the rivers and that causes eutrophication, all sorts of problems, then then what are they going to do with it? And um, obviously some smaller farmers are struggling as it is anyway. Uh, so I think that, that it looks like they've been pushing quite hard for this to change, and then didn't George Eustace then have to create um, a set of guidance to kind of clarify a previous regulatory position statement? And it's been going back and forth, and I think confusion yeah. was one of the issues.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I, th- I think that that's the that's the interesting thing. So the um, situation with autumn shredding. So so the um, I think I think from the perspective of farmers, the the Environment Agency had, had taken quite a um, strict interpretation of the rules, and and. That was being kind of interpreted by farmers as almost entirely ruling out autumn spreading. So the the farmers' union, NFU, they 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 lobbied quite hard to get those rules overturned. There was a regulatory position statement from the Environment Agency, um, but that was because of this lobbying. The the NFU say because of their lobbying, that that regulatory position statement has been removed and so the DEFR itself has issued guidance sort of clarifying when when this could when this can happen so it does it does kind of look that in the face of lobbying from farmers that the 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 environment agency has almost been been sidelined and and defra has stepped in to kind of um to help the farmers out
0: yeah yeah i guess we we need to say that james bevan in this um committee meeting he said that he did support the idea that they shouldn't enforce the rule for two rules for two years because Um, He's saying advice and guidance and working with the farmers to show them how to do things correctly is better than slapping down a a prosecution straight away. But two years just seems like an awfully long time. And he he backed it up with um, what's happened since. So he says in 2020 21 there were 276 farm inspections, 224 incidents of non compliance, but they were all dealt with through advice and guidance. And the following year there were more inspections, there were 1,800. But then there were almost 1,000 non-compliance incidences and thousands of notice issued and all that all that kind of stuff. But again, no prosecutions. And I mean, some of this is in response to criticism over the lack of farm inspections that there have been over the years. I think there was a, an incredible statistic that said a farm could expect to be inspected by a, an officer once every 200 or so years. So now the Environment Agency has hired, or has at least in July, Recruited for fifty new farm inspection officers. However, End Report reported in January um, that none of these officers would have enforcement powers. Bevan did say that they will they're going to continue providing guidance and advice and helping farmers to get to the right solution, and that does make sense. Um, But he did come on to say that, you know, if, if there are farmers who have repeated warnings, and they continually breach the rules, and they've been given help, and they're significantly damaging the environment, a lot of ifs in there, but then they would definitely go after that farmer. This is an instance of when DEFRA has tried to, you know, put out some quite strong rules and then had to row back from them. Um, but it's 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 not the only thing that that's happening to at the moment, is it Tess? Can you um, fill us in on what's happening with ELMS? Yes,
2: well there's been reports this week that um, ELMS, the Environmental Land Management Schemes, which, you know, these are meant to be the big pillar of our post-Brexit um, environmental uh, kind of support that's going to be given to farmers so that they can do stuff that's actually going to improve the environment rather than um, well, at the very least, do nothing, but, you know, often damage it. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the cabinet minister, is putting pressure on the government to drop the scheme or, or at least delay it. And you know, then Steve Baker, who, you know, listeners probably have heard of, uh, he, you know, he's kind of in the anti-net zero uh, backbencher group. Um, he's also w- widely, you know, been quite open about wanting to push Elms back.
0: What yeah. reasons are they giving for this?
2: At the moment, the, the the arguments that these groups make is that, well, you know, we've got a crisis in Ukraine and food production crisis. We can't, you know, be t- telling farmers uh, they need to not produce food during a cost of living crisis and instead, you know, just make ponds. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and that's that's the attitude taken. I think it's it's a general feeling that all this environment stuff is a bit you know shmambi pambi uh, and it's not shmambi pambi yes you know the phrase <laughs> uh, <laughs> technical term yeah that um, it's just not not that you know why 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 are we spending taxpayers money on this sort of thing i think it's that sort of attitude uh, that's coming through on this some of the other policy we're seeing kind of the, the move to to deregulation in the green paper yeah. that could well be coming down the tracks uh, that's thought to have the support of people like jacob re and that's and that side of the government at least so i th- and i think this is just another example and the green groups are you know that this is this would be terrible I think, in the in the from the perspective of green groups if elms was delayed uh or or scrapped because it's it was one of meant to be one of the big wins of brexit yeah uh, so yes we'll see yeah
0: well, thank you for that. Well, let's go move on to our next story, which is um, not too dissimilar, really. This is about the new green watchdog. You've heard us talk about it before, the Office for Environmental Protection, or OEP. Uh, now it's fully up and running, pretty much. It's begun to show its teeth by responding to a raft of uh, ongoing green policy consultations, some of which we've, we've uh, mentioned before. Uh, but today we're looking at its reactions to DEFRA's nature recovery green paper and to the biodiversity net gain proposals. Uh, Tess, can you can we start with the green paper? What are they what's what's the main issue that they're taking issue
2: with? (laughs) <laughs> but they they took issue with a few issues but um i i'd say that the the headline one was it, it, one of the proposals in the green paper is that uh, the secretary of state should be given the power to designate protected sites because um, that that sits with natural england at the it moment it currently right? sits with natural england yeah. uh, as you know the statutory nature conservation body uh the oep says actually this power should remain with natural england and kind of basically saying that the, the kind of the, the vague kind of assurances given in in the green paper that the, the Secretary of State would be fully transparent about decision making, and they say that's well, that's not that's not enough. We want to see real science back decision making. This should remain with with Natural England to, to have a level of independence, so that yeah, couldn't be affected by other motivations.
0: Well, what's Defra's reason for wanting to bring it into
2: the sort of ministerial? Well, scope? the green paper says, well, you know, other other protected sites and designations are you know the final word is given to the the secretary of state although what it doesn't state is that the, you know at the current time a lot of these decisions like when it comes to the european designated sites as you know the, the secretary state has very little leeway really about accepting a designation or not mm. um it's all this part of wanting to streamline decision making and that it shouldn't be so fragmented uh so that's that's defra's explanation
0: is it seen as a power grab by anybody uh
2: i think it's it's raised some eyebrows i think it'd need you know the green paper doesn't have that much detail in it on on quite a number of things Mm. uh and this is one of the it's raised eyebrows but it would you know i guess depend on how it was structured but the oep say it should stay uh with with natural england
0: okay so let's move on to the Biodiversity net gain proposals, which stipulate that any new developments should create a ten percent increase in nature once they're completed, and what does the watchdog think of this
1: jamie well i mean the 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 main thing is it thinks that ten percent isn't isn't enough right I, I guess it's interesting i mean i, I suppose when, when you look at biodiversity net gain and and what's happening already is that that um you do see developers. And and local planning authorities often they they do agree in that gain that is is higher than ten percent, but but it's kind of it's kind of interesting that that the um, OEP is is kind of pushing the government to go further on that. Um, and the, the the other thing that it's it's raised concerns over, which is which is a concern that comes up quite frequently around that gain is is just whether local authorities have the the capacity to to deliver it. So that there's a there's been long 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 standing concerns around a lack of local sort of a lack of ecological expertise within local authorities and and the and the OEP is, is um, surfacing those concerns again
0: yeah so I think um what we say about uh, resourcing we've been covering that for years now haven't we Jamie I mean it, whereabouts should that resource go and where is it lacking
1: uh, well uh, well I think it's um it's it's a resource within local planning authorities themselves so so um, in the past, I'm not sure quite how long ago, but but the the situation was that local authorities were quite, they they would have kind of in-house ecological advisors who who would be able to help. Presumably, if you have a if Net Gain existed, then you, they they'd be able to kind of help scrutinise the um, proposals and and um, that sort of stuff. But that but in a lot of authorities that that just does not exist anymore. So so it kind of that just runs a risk of of poor environmental outcomes and and the policy not not working as well as it as well as it yeah. could do.
0: I think all these, all these kinds of policies, these net gain type policies, um, they're going to have issues. I think this is what the OEP has said. And I think this is what we've said in our reporting um, across enforcement and impl- implementation. I mean, how are they? Has the OEP suggested a way of getting around this or have they just raised the fact that it could be a problem Tess? us?
2: Um, well, they certainly raise that it's a problem and, they, you know, they, they, it's one of the, the big problems as they see it. Um, that the, the consultation document, they say, doesn't set out, you know, details uh, of how it will be of the governance mechanism of biodiversity net game. And there's not enough uh, support like we've just been talking about to make it happen. Um, resourcing, as mm. it always comes down to, is, is what will actually make the difference there. They also mention the, the biodiversity net gain credit market as being a cause for concern. And, you know, the, the, inf- the governance there because that that's yeah that's an idea it's meant to underpin a lot of the this policy is that there'll be a private market supporting it um but very little detail about how that that will be safeguarded so that it will actually work for nature so that will that be an unregulated market will it currently there was a kind of evidence document that came out with a consultation and the the consultancy suggested that the oEP could potentially be a a kind of enforcement body but You know, that was the suggestion. It's not in, you know, it's not in the consultation Mm -hmm. document, but it raises that there is nothing currently in place. Yeah,
0: they'd need a whole new division to start looking at that, I imagine. It sounds like it's going to be a bit of a Wild West. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, these are all problems that we've covered before and we'll continue to look at. Do we have any idea of whether there's going to be a second round of consultations, if everything that's come out now is so high level that it just raises more questions? Is there a promise at the end of these consultations that... You know, once the high level principles have been established, we will then focus on the detail in six months or?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I think, well, well, certainly with the the green paper, it, it's a green paper. It's, it acknowledges itself that it's high level yeah. and that there would, you know, come from that. There would be, you know, a white paper and that would, you know, you'd imagine go out for consultation. So it's probably, you know, not the final word. And I, there are parts of biodiversity net gain. I think they said they would consult how it would work for nationally significant infrastructure projects. Mm. Uh, so that could that should still be to come.
0: I just think on biodiversity net gain, particularly. I feel like we've been talking about this for many years. I mean, Jamie, when do you, how far back do you think we've been reporting on the idea of net gain? It feels to me like about five years, but I might be. My my sense of time is all messed
1: up. It certainly goes back to around like the twenty five year plan sort of time. That was that was sort of twenty eighteen, wasn't it? So it kind of. Mm. But yeah, and it's still, but it's still still a long still a long way to go as well. It doesn't. It's not mandatory until next autumn, so that's where it's all gonna properly kick off. And then I think the the introduction of it for infrastructure projects that's that's kind of further down the line as well. So so um I think we're probably gonna be be talking about it for quite a few more podcasts to come as well.
0: Joy <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, I'm going to move on. Our final story is a good news story. It's about a super, not my words, but Natural England, super national nature reserve. I guess we're going to end up calling those SNNRs uh, in Somerset, created by Natural England. Uh, the nature regulators is going to expand the size of existing reserves in the area by nearly
2: 2,200 hectares. It sounds great. What can you tell us about it, Tess? Uh, well, yes, it, it does sound great. It's it's going to be very big. I, I put 2,200 hectares through the uh, the hectare to football field online converter. Excellent. Uh, which is, you know, uh, the, sta- the industry standard. It is. Uh, that's, it's more than 4,000 football fields, apparently. 4,000. So, you know, that's, that's is a, it's a lot of land. And uh, natural England, you know, they say that it's going to protect salt marsh, heath, wetlands, uh, you know, a whole load of different types of wildlife. Um, And it was also, you know, because it's uh, the second largest area of lowland peat, apparently in the UK, it should be a significant carbon store, holding over 11 million tonnes of carbon, according to Natural England. Fantastic. What kind of species would be protected under it? Uh, Well, uh, there's a a number. One of my favourite ones, the names is the hairy dragonfly. Ah. Uh, There's also the silver diving beetle and the raft spider. Wow, they sound really exotic.
0: I know. Yeah, like see those in action. Okay, and so is there? Are there any other supernatural nature reserves out there, or is this the first?
2: Uh, there, there, this is the second. Um, there is there is another one, um, but it's, I think this is, you know, I, I I don't know if any other one is particularly on the cards at the moment. But I, we've heard, you know, uh, Defra talking quite a lot about nature reserves recently. Mm. George Eustace, in particular, seems quite keen on using them. As opposed to maybe designating other kinds of sites like triple SIs, yeah, uh, because they're apparently you know they're relatively quick and easy to designate. I guess the side of, other side of that is I think they, they have less legal protections, mm-hmm. um, but it's a way to quickly designate land for nature protection. So, you know, it's it it, it is a good thing.
0: Yeah, I think um, there's been talk for a long time about how large scale habitat restoration is needed and that connectivity is, is really important how does this does this link in any way with what we we're talking about earlier about um creating new types of protections um sort of replacing the mishmash of you know different designations does this feed into that at all or is this just something that's happening in parallel
3: uh
2: well it, it doesn't it doesn't feed in explicitly but i think it 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 is set to because, yes, the Green Paper does propose a whole new way of uh, having protected sites. And Defra is talking about wanting to simplify the process. That's yeah. their word. Um, maybe tiering, taking all of our different types of designations and, you know, tiering them into a much simpler um, sort of process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, natural, uh, the designation of, of uh, National Nature Reserves could form a part of that um quite possibly, because they're, they're easy to designate. Uh, but that's not, you know, don't know that for sure. But it's definitely, there's lots of thinking, obviously, going on about designations.
0: Mm. And what kind of protections
2: uh, does a nature reserve benefit from? Uh, well, it's designated under the Wildlife and Countryside Act. Mm-hmm. The, the land manager needs to protect it. it, needs to be managing it for nature. Okay. Uh, that's one of the, the terms for its designation. But I suppose if you, you know, compare to like a, a SSSI you know, you, you, you where know, it's uh, causing harm is prohibited uh, to a much stronger level. I don't think you have that with, na- with nature reserves.
0: So, that's some, some good news, which is a bit of a rare thing on the eco chamber. We're going to try and bring you more good news as we go forward. Um, but now, I think it's time for the quiz, Jamie. Are you ready? This is about this is taken from the fines monitor, which is that the ENDS reports database of uh, environmental penalties, which is we've got hundreds of entries in there. we added over the years and it's a massive resource for our subscribers. But Jamie's going to quiz us on it now, I think.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so um, as you say, the, um, we've been running the fines monitor tracker for I think longer than the government's been talking about biodiversity net gain. So it's quite, quite well established now. So It's <laughs> on so, new benchmark. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's, it's essentially a, um, it's a database of environmental fines and enforcement undertakings. Um, and we, we've got a huge amount of data in there. So we've, we've, we've got more than a thousand penalties with, I think the total values approaching 400 million or so. So it's, um, so there's a lot of stuff in there and it's, um, it's available to subscribers. There's a live table which is which is sortable and searchable. So um, if you're a subscriber, then then knock yourself out, definitely. But what I thought I'd do for the quiz would be to look at the um, take a look at the fines. Monitor back catalogue and um, ask you both to guess guess the value of the financial penalty and maybe do do the best out of three. Bring it on. So the the first fine is from early this year, and this is a fine for um, house builder Persimmon Homes, which had polluted a river in South Wales with silt contaminated water and there were um seven pollution offences caused by runoff from a from a development site in Abergavenny. So the question is um what was the total payout? Who can get who can get closest to it?
2: I I think this one was quite low. I vaguely remember it. But um, go on then uh, twenty five so multiple breaches. It ought to be high,
0: but as we know, it's it's they vary so wildly. I'm going to go. I'm going to go higher. I'm going to go with
1: eighty grand. Okay, well, you're both nowhere near. It's um, four hundred thirty-three thousand. So oh, oh, okay, that's oh, on okay. Turn. okay. But I think I think I think I think. But I think <laughs> I think Rachel was uh, closest on that. So it's one 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 nil to Rachel on. Um, Okay, so the, the, this this one might be a little bit easier. This this is a fine that dates back to last July, and it was for water company Southern Water, and followed the firm repeatedly and deliberately dumping raw sewage into seas along the south coast. And it's the biggest fine in our database. So, Ra- Rachel's got her hands up.
0: I'm waving. Yeah. So <laughs> if this is the, if this is a combined penalty, I think it's 126 million, but that's combined with the sort of the penalties and the prosecution fine and all that kind of stuff.
1: This this is just the 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 prosecution bit. Oh, I say just that it's still quite big though. Oh one point two. one point two. It's ninety ninety two point five million. Uh, Damn it! Damn <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> what was the combined total? It's one hundred twenty six. I get a point for that, surely. With the It's clo- It's closer
1: to ninety ninety two point five million and, than one hundred whatever it was. Um, so yeah, I think probably it's <laughs> by virtue by of being slightly closer. So we have got the last the last one. This is this is a bit more fun. So this is 2016. This is a failure to comply with the EU emissions trading scheme, and the offender is D J T Operations, which is the firm that operates Donald Trump's private jet. So what what was the size of the penalty?
0: I don't think this one was very big. I think this was like fifteen thousand
2: pounds or something. I'll go fifty thousand.
1: It was actually quite small. It was one thousand six hundred and eleven pounds.
2: Oh, okay. They can afford more than that.
1: Yeah, that, Yeah. Maybe he could then. I don't know. But um. Mm. <laughs> but uh, but I think that means Rachel is is the victorious there. Rachel was than... one. Yes.
0: I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that Jamie that brings us to the end of the big green news section thank you Jamie and thank you Tess we'll be back with more and hopefully some updates on what we've been talking about today in a fortnight's time or you could go to endsreport.com in the interim and see what we've been writing next up is our deep dive section in this episode Jamie and I are looking at the missing links and whether it could ever be reintroduced into the UK it was thought to have been rendered extinct across the British Isles by the early Middle Ages due to a combination of hunting and loss of their forest habitat. But we're talking about it today because research has been published on the views of farmers, gamekeepers, foresters and conservation groups on whether or not they would support reintroduction in Scotland. Jamie, could you tell us a little bit about that research?
1: Yeah, so the, the, um, the research is, is um, it's from a, a coalition of conservation groups in Scotland and it's, it's basically exploring how local communities feel about the idea of bringing links back to to two different areas of Scotland and what and what needs to be done to progress the idea further one of the the main things that um, comes out of it is as the kind of conflict between the the kind of conservation benefits of links reintroduction sort of versus the impact on 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 sheep farming and and livestock which which is kind of something that comes up quite often with these these reintroduction and rewilding kind of plans
0: so it's like we were talking about earlier it's often you know there's, there's these great or you know got some hopeful environmental policies and then you get often very often farming and, and landowning interests pushing quite hard in the other direction is that what's happening here as well
1: yeah exactly so so i think i think with this the concern from farmers is is a serious concern around lynx's appetite for sheep but actually that might not be the case if you look at the evidence from um from europe where where there have been sort of successful lynx reintroductions the that, that um sheep in in europe most generally they 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 tend to graze in 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 open pasture where where lynxes don't hunt so if you've got somewhere like switzerland which is home to around 300 lynxes they they, they only kill between 20 and 50 sheep a year and and, and licenses are given out there to kill problem lynxes but there haven't been any issued since since 2003 so the problem might not be that bad but and um but the tension i guess is that that conservationists might might sort of view that scale of losses as being something that's that's surprised price worth paying but if you're an individual farmer and you've got a small herd of sheep then even even if overall there aren't many sheep per year getting killed if one of those sheep is your sheep you're not going to be too happy about it so that's that's the kind of tension and difficulty that 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 um, proponents of this sort of thing need to need to try and get around
0: could links also predate foxes, which then, or, you know, those kind of uh, animals, which could then potentially balance out, um, you know, how many are taken, you know, how many sheep, for example, are taken by other wildlife? I mean, is there a way, could it balance out that way or potentially even improve security for livestock? Or is that, is that, uh, would it not quite work out
1: like that? I mean, I'm not sure about that, but I think there's, there's definitely um, potentially big upsides of this. So, like, if, if you look at Scotland, where, where this report is... Um, from and um that there have been, there have been kind of conversations for a while about reintroducing links what well, one one of the one of the issues in scotland is that there are, there are kind of huge numbers of deer that cause widespread eco- ecological damage and and um if, if you reintroduce links there that, that that could help reduce deer populations which in turn would, would increase natural woodland regeneration so there's definitely um there's definitely some very very good sound reasons for for doing this if um if if the the if the people that want to do it can, can kind of win the argument with the, with the farmers.
0: There have been plans to try to reintroduce the links to Scotland, but that's been discussed for over a, a decade. I think uh, the University of Lancaster found that Scotland could potentially support 250 uh, links and opened a consultation um, on releasing them into the Queen Elizabeth Forest Park, which is part, part of Loch Lomond and uh, the Trossachs National Park. And there are also a number of charities looking at the viability of uh, reintroducing the links, but uh, it just hasn't happened, and I think that the opposition to it is probably just a, a little bit too strong. But there are also some quite high-profile, influ- influential individuals who are for it. Jamie, can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean there are some very, very senior figures who who have spoken out in favour of um, lynx reintroduction. So, so one of them is um, Tony Juniper, who's who's a chair of Natural England, and he he he's he's said that the reintroduction of the inspiring wild links would would help keep deer numbers down and restore ecosystems so he's been saying that he wants he wants he'd like to see the links which has been missing now from the from the uk for 1300 years he wants to see them reintroduced to england as part of his nature restoration plans you've got other people within defra like um ben goldsmith who's a defra board member he's he's an advocate for this um and, and and we do know that that boris johnson and, and and his wife carrie johnson michael gove uh, are kind of supportive of the idea of rewilding although although it's not quite clear whether kind of bringing back the links is a step too far for them whether they're, they're kind of they're, their line kind of is beaver and otter and not not quite as a <laughs> not 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 the kind of predator level, but um, who knows?
0: Yeah, I think Craig Bennett as well, who's the Wildlife Trusts uh, chief executive, he really wants to bring back the lynx. He's saying that he's uh, he's determined to do so by the end of the decade, which would be quite exciting. And I think uh, Rewilder Derek Gow has said that he is going to be breeding lynx as well. So they're going to be here in bits and you know in places, but whether they'll ever be released uh, is a is another question. But I for one would love to see the cats back. So a number of other species have been successfully reintroduced into the UK. Uh, obviously, nothing quite as controversial as the lynx, but Jamie, can you tell us a little bit about uh, those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think I think we talked in the last podcast, or certainly a recent one, about how rewilding is is kind of very much the thing now, and, and there there are some there are more and more examples of this happening. So, so um, beavers have been brought back to the west coast of Scotland and Tayside. side. Um, pine martins have been released into mid Wales, and, and and um White-tailed eagles can now be seen over large areas of Scotland and and um, been introduced in the Isle of Wight as well. So there's there's a lot of examples and 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 they, they do they do contain lessons that that enthusiasts for, for introducing links can can learn learn from. Um, if you look at beavers, so so there was a unlicensed release of beavers that took place in Tayside in around 2005, and that's now grown into a population of around a thousand beavers um, and and. And it may have been a success in the sense that beavers are thriving, but but it was it was an illegal release, and it's caused a huge amount of resentment among farmers. And that's because beavers they they they're quite cunning, and they 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 construct dams and this see the fields flooding, and that that kind of might make them unproductive for growing crops. Um, so so that that's an example where if you have, there's an implication for for farmers that, that needs to be be thought about, and and, and similarly with with white-tailed eagles so so the, where they've been reduced to scotland they're kind of credited with boosting local economies sort of more tourism but but there's there's a there's a concern that the, the benefits aren't felt by everyone so so you you, you might have B's that kind of see financial benefit but actually the farmers on the front line that they they don't see the benefits at all really so so th- these were kind of addressed in the the report that we were talking about at the very start of the the deep dive section right where they're, they're kind of s- suggesting that uh an action group is established to to address potential barriers and areas of disagreement and to to explore mitigation and compensation solutions to kind of get these these farmers and landowners on side to kind of smooth the path to getting making these things happen
0: yeah that makes sense i mean all these concerns are they theoretical concerns or have they been happening since some beavers have been reintroduced to a particular part of the uh, countryside
1: I think they are real concerns. I think I think the extent to which they happen is 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 something I'm I'm not sure about. I mean, certainly I've certainly seen reports with the with the beaver in in Scotland that 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 has actually led to some some agricultural land being lost with like, white-tailed eagles. That there, there are certainly that there, there, there are some some sheep that get killed by them. And um, but I think it's it's um, how how far that goes is is the is the question and and addressing that kind of perception if you if you're saying earlier if you if you're a farmer with a small herd if, if you do lose lose a lose some of your herd due to a reintroduction then that's that's not great for you And when you look at the um what's happening in europe that there, there are clear it's clear that there are kind of compensation schemes that are put in place to try and sort of mitigate some of the impact from from these reintroductions which i, sw- I suppose that would be the sort of thing that we'd have to to think about for for the uk if, if we were to go down this route
0: well, if it's been done elsewhere surely it can be done done here potentially or maybe there is less uh less land and, and more people is that part of the problem
1: i don't i don't think so i think i mean if if you look at europe there were so the, the figures i've seen that there, there are around 700 links in europe during the f- 1950s and now there are about 9000 and they have they have kind of basically naturally recolonized territories in scandinavia and the baltic states and western russia um and that's that's kind of been due to local people accepting it and there being an increase in forest cover and um, growing populations of deer in those areas but but in other parts of europe where it's not quite as easy to re-establish them it has happened anyway so uh, places like switzerland slovenia czech republic and france so so it it has been possible to establish them in places where which probably aren't that dissimilar to to the uk where they're kind of barriers that, that might prevent species from from kind of um from colonising naturally so so it is possible and it does seem that in most places this this has been done in a way where it's been been manageable and and ways have been found to kind of keep farmers from keep farmers on side with the with the initiatives
0: well that all sounds really hopeful let's um, watch this space closely and see if we can get to a point at some point down the line where we can see the cats back in our country without causing farmers any grief Now it's time for the Chemical Brothers, Simon Pickstone and Gareth Simpkins, who have been looking at why your five a day might actually be causing you problems. Over to you, Gareth and Simon.
3: Thanks, Rachel. As the the days get longer, uh, thoughts turn to picnics in the park, potentially going down to the beach, and of course, all of that beautiful summer fruit, plums, peaches, you name it, uh, now starting to cram the supermarket shelves. Unfortunately, new study is out, so Pesticides Action Network Europe has come out with a new study where they were looking at official data from across EU member states from 2019, so that still includes the UK at this point, uh, looking at traces of the most hazardous forms of pesticides on fruit and veg sold in you know, supermarkets, greengrocers, wherever. You might come into contact with them. What it's found is that, contrary to what you might be hearing from a lot of the EU press releases, is that actually exposure in terms of the fruit and veg that we're consuming to so the most hazardous forms of chemicals, pesticides, seems to be going up rather than down.
4: So why did we think they were going down in the first place?
3: Well, it's based on how the European Commission, which is the executive arm of the EU, um, measures pesticide use, which is to say it doesn't actually really measure use, it measures sales of volumes of pesticides, basically, on an annual basis. And member states report to the commission every year and they say well you know this year we sold x million tons of pesticides so that's basically how we get our um, EUI data on pesticide use unfortunately that doesn't tell us very much about how they're applied and the kinds of products we are likely to find them in what this new report does which is very interesting is to check also official data that's reported to the commission that looks specifically at residue on plants and particularly on fruit and veg so can you give us some examples yeah, so one of the one of the one of the fruits that the report looks at is weirdly kiwi fruit, which you wouldn't think of as being a big EU product, but in fact you do get quite a lot in Italy and in Spain. In 2011, kiwi fruit had almost no hazardous pesticides present, so about 4% in 2011, by 2019, that had gone up to 32% of That's all the kiwi like, we tested.
4: So what specific substances are we talking about here?
3: Oh, oh, oh Gareth, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so the, 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 the substances that they're testing for are pesticides that are candidates for substitution. And what that means is these are chemicals which have only just passed, they scraped through the EU authorization process. Under the existing EU rules, basically, if a company puts forward a product for approval to an EU regulator that is a candidate for substitution, then the member state in question has to compare that substance with other available substances on the market. And if there's an alternative which is safer, then effectively that, that chemical can't be authorised. Some of the most common found in this, in this survey include, include things like fludioxinil, that's a fungicide, which can be sprayed onto seeds, but it's also used to coat the surface of fruit, so that's to stop your fruits from mulberry. getting attacked from, yeah, exactly, yeah. fungus. Um, that's commonly found on kiwi, for instance, but also cherries, apples, pears, peaches, so pretty much, you name it. Most of the, A lot of the other really common ones of fruits are also fungicides. Things like tebuconazole, that's most commonly found on cherries and peaches, and cypredonil, that's another fungicide, which is found, again, on very similar fruits. They all come with health risks. They're all Annex Three of the REACH regulation. Without going into details, that means that the European Chemicals Agency suspects that they have hazardous properties. So, and by
4: hazardous properties, you mean suspected mutagens, carcinogens, exactly?
3: Yeah, or potentially repro- toxic for the reproductive system, potentially hazardous for the aquatic environment, etc., etc. So, they're, they're generally speaking suspected of being pretty nasty, although the full evidence base isn't maybe there for for a ban. So how does the UK fare? It's a bit hard to say because the UK doesn't appear in all of the data because we're, as you might understand, not a massive kiwi producing nation. Where it does feature, we're actually surprisingly low down the list. So in apples, for instance, only around 20% of the apples in the UK tested contained hazardous pesticides. That's more like 61% in the Netherlands, which is the highest the overall EU-wide or Europe-wide picture I should say at this point shows that cherries, pears and peaches are the most likely to be contaminated so in 2019 over 50% of all the samples contained hazardous levels of pesticides but if you look at like a kind of a longer term picture we're talking about blackberries, peaches strawberries, cherries, apricots as the five most common fruits that have hazardous so
4: about half of blackberries blackberries and peaches were contaminated yeah roughly that's shocking isn't it yeah third for cherries and apricots
3: what about veggie we've all talked we've talked about what about veg we've talked about fruit so far what's interesting with vegetables is that apparently i didn't know this easier to grow than fruit so they're let, much like, to get attacked by um fungus and and other nasties that means that that's reflected in the use and pesticides they're generally less contaminated not the same for all vegetables by any means celery again in 2019 we had about half the samples of celery had these hazardous forms of pesticides that figures actually come down a little bit in recent years though cucumbers it was about 16 percent spinach about 20 percent and the kinds of pesticides that we're seeing are, are different so much less fungicide much more just like standard general purpose insecticides the vegetable picture was also complicated by uh, national differences so in Spain and France for example with cucumbers we had something like 35 percent of cucumbers had residue in the UK, that was more like the EU average of about 19 20 percent So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a mixed picture.
4: Yeah, so th- th- this is just the pesticides recognised as potentially hazardous and ignoring everything else. Right,
3: yeah, and this is actually one of the things that the, that the study highlights is also the fact that we haven't even... Um, we've only really just started to begin to study the interaction between different kinds of pesticides, right? Mm. Even pesticides that might be considered relatively benign or safe by themselves potentially if you put them mix them all together in a kind of cocktail on the same uh, different active substances in the same product for instance we don't really know exactly how these things are interacting mm. and that could lead to all kinds of unintended consequences it's all a bit worrying is this? I mean it's also one of the things where in the EU at least regulators are aware of what's going on and so we talked about this in the last episode but the EU, the European Commission published a strategy on sustainable farming called the farm-to-fork strategy they really know how to name them Um, which wants to halve the use of the most hazardous kinds of pesticides by 2030 so it's come under a lot of pressure because of the conflict in ukraine and worries around food security but there's good indications that commission officials are trying to push this through we're yet to see any of the big legislative initiatives but that's due to come very shortly
4: Mm. meanwhile what's going on in the uk well, is busy working on its, uh, on its own chemical strategy and what exactly that will say. We're just going to have to wait
3: and see. Back to you, Rachel.
0: So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to uh, Jamie Carpenter and Tess Colley, Gareth Simkins and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to energyport.com where you'll find tonnes and tonnes more information. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.